Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground. Cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Sidetrack episode 36, John Chrysostom with Robin Pearson. Welcome back to A2Z History Presents, the history of the papacy. We are now a member of the Agora Podcast Network. The Agora Podcast Network is creating a virtual marketplace of the mind where intelligent, independent podcasters meet up with curious and discerning listeners. This month of March, we are continuing to feature the excellent podcasts of David Crowther. You know as well as I do, David weaves all the tales of English history together into one incredible story. David discusses the history of England in a style that is informative and completely entertaining. Go over to agorapodcastnetwork.com to learn more. I'm very excited to share the interview I did with Robin Pearson of the History of Byzantium with you. As you probably already know, Robin is taking on the story of Rome where Mike Duncan left off in 476 AD. That is a tall task, but Robin is clearly up to the job. Today, we focus in on one particular character of the story we talked about in the history of the papacy, but Robin went into even greater detail about John Chrysostom. The episode today is why I really love sidetrack episodes. We don't have to always move forward in the narrative. We can go back and take a more in-depth look at a specific topic. There are just too many good stories to pass up, and we need to take time to talk about as many as we can. Robin has created an excellent series called The Byzantine Stories. You can go to Robin's website, thehistoryofbyzantium.com. You can learn more about Robin's show and learn how to get the Byzantine stories there. Don't forget, if you go to patreon.com papacy, you will see a great way to become a closer part of the project. There are all sorts of levels of patronage, each with unique rewards. Thanks today to our Constantinople-level patrons, Regan, Sandy, and Andy. Your patronage definitely helps greatly to get shows out more often, and my hope is the episodes will be at a higher quality as well. Don't hesitate to tell me what you think. One last thing. Thank you to donator Philip. 
As always, thank you very much for listening. If you have any follow-up questions about this interview or John or anything else, please send me an email or any of the other ways you can get in contact with me, which can be found at a2zhistorypage.com. Well, this is a very special episode today. We're welcoming Robin Pearson of the History of Byzantium podcast, and we're really happy to have you on today. Hey, it's great to be here. Um, just introducing you, we said that you're the host and producer of the History of Byzantium podcast, which is a continuation of Mike Duncan's seminal History of Rome podcast. And you pick up in 476 AD, where Mike That's left right. off. I felt that you have really covered the religious aspect of the Byzantine Empire, maybe even better than Sir Mike himself. Do you think <laughs> that it's more of a factor in Byzantine history, the religious end? I, I guess the dispute over what is what is correct religious thinking is a big deal in Byzantium in a way it it wasn't so much particularly in the in the early days of rome when um the romans kind of assumed everyone would have their own local gods and didn't uh didn't interfere at all in that and so now yeah in the byzantine era it's it's a, always a constant discussion trying to get everyone on the same page and so it, it's become a much more integral part of politics and then you also have the history of Islam in there as well. Yes, um, that's that's very true. Suddenly, you know, the, I guess that's another angle to it, that the Romans were always coming in as the conquerors. So whatever local religion <laughs> that people were, you know, adhering to was already sort of undermined in a way by, by Roman dominance, whereas here they're being undermined by the rise of Islam kind of conferring legitimacy on the Arabs conquering, you know, a much larger empire than than even the Romans had. So yeah, suddenly their how they feel about themselves as it's reflected through their religious belief becomes a, a big deal. And that's something that you've talked about a lot. But today we're we may hold you to having you back on to talk about the history of Islam too. Ah yes. But today we're going to talk about a, a individual that we've talked about quite a bit on the history of the papacy podcast. John Chrysostom, who was the Archbishop of Constantinople during the late 300s. Can you give us maybe a thumbnail sketch of John's life? Uh, up to the point he he went to Constantinople? Yeah, maybe his early life, yeah. Yeah. Um, so John was born about 349 uh, in Antioch, uh, which at the time was the... Uh, the sort of capital city of the Roman East um, is probably a bit smaller than Alexandria, but that's obviously down in Egypt in its own little ecosystem. Uh, and it, Antioch is becoming an increasingly Christian place um, by the late fourth century. Uh, John's family are middle class. His father is a civil servant, but he dies when John's young. And so he's raised by his mother, who is a passionate Christian and she refuses to remarry and dedicates herself to the church. And this commitment, this sacrifice, and, and this discipline have a big impact on John. Um, he does go through the, the secular school system. Uh, you know, he learns 
rhetoric and, and all the skills that a young man needs and gets a proper Greek education. But instead of joining the professional ranks of the secular bureaucracy, he, he decides I'm going to, to head into the church. And uh, so that's sort of about 360. And, and it, it, he kind of, he decides to, he's more drawn to the the ascetic way of life. He wants to become a monk. He, those are the people he really admires. Um, they have a big reputation in Antioch. They kind of live in the hills around it. And of course, um, you know, live on very little food and very little sleep. And so they're seen as kind of, you know, superheroes by the Christians down in Antioch that they, they have special access to the divine. So John heads off and lives with them for, you know, the best part of his twenties <laughs> and, and then comes back to Antioch to, to start a, a proper career in the church. He's known as the golden mouth. Did he have that reputation in Antioch as a big time preacher and sermonizer? Absolutely. And we should say, if you've ever heard of him, you know, being called John Chrysostom, part of why that nickname sticks is because Romans didn't use surnames. Not very often. They didn't, they didn't sort of value family names in quite the same way we did. So he, he would have been known as John of Antioch and then John the Bishop. And so a good nickname usually sticks because then you can identify him if there are several other Johns <laughs> around. Um, and Golden Mouth is a nickname that had been used before for, for other bishops. So it was one that people kind of readily identified. Um, and yeah, he, he gained this reputation uh, when he was uh, a priest in Antioch, and he kind of got picked up by the the bishop, who recognized what a good speaker he was, and he kind of led John around with him, so that whenever he was leading a service, John would actually give the sermon. Um, and he he combined this you know great traditional Greek education uh, in rhetoric, so he knew how to structure a speech. In a, in a very fine way with his his training as a monk where he was you know spending hours a day reading the bible and he'd learnt he claims all of it but at least large parts of it off by heart so when he came to be a priest in antioch he would go up right to the front of the congregation stand in front of them on a pulpit and give sermons with no notes and, you know, just say, you remember in the Bible when it says this and just quote it while staring them in the eye. And so he really, you know, blew people away and had an impact on them. And so, yeah, I'm sure imagine that nickname got given to him early on. You know, this guy's a great speaker and people came, you know, people came to hear it, you know, some of whom weren't Christians just because people, you know, the, the, there's no television, there's no other entertainment on. Why not slip in and hear if this guy's as good as everyone says he is and you did a four-part series was it on john that's a purchase series of episodes yeah you can hear the part one for free um just uh on the history of byzantium feed and that kind of sets the scene and um that's quite an interesting one because it just sets up what and what living in antioch would be like so there's quite a good a lot of good daily life information in there and you've used a really cool voice for John. It, you <laughs> didn't just read the quotes yourself. You had a voice that really set the stage. Where did that come from? Was that you? Uh, that's actually my dad. Uh, <laughs> my dad uh, is an actor, and um, I've been working for him as his manager for 
quite a while. That's my, that's my day job, uh, in between podcasting. And, um, yeah, one of the exciting things about reading about John, uh, you know, when you get interested in ancient history, you know, you, you quickly learn there are some big figures we know almost nothing about and we have no direct quotes from them or anything. You come to John Chrysostom and we have just hundreds of sermons and letters and tracts he wrote. So quite unlike a lot of people, you can hear his actual words and thoughts. And so I had so many quotes to give directly from his mouth. I thought, well, it would be good to have a different voice than mine. And uh, obviously my dad's is not it's not a million miles from mine, but he is, uh, he's a much better speaker than I am. And, uh, yeah, he, he just, he would just take one look at a sentence and then he just reads it out the way you heard. Um, that's, oh, wow. That's... Yeah. That, I think that was probably the most, I mean, obviously the information was incredible, but that really set the whole stage of it and set the whole scene. I thought that was, that was definitely one of my most favorite parts of the whole series. Ah, oh, well, that's great. I'll have to tell him that. Yeah. <laughs> and it is interesting, and even in the Eastern churches today, the sermon that's read on Easter is universally, it's John Chrysostom's Eastern or Easter sermon that's read. It's, it's short, which I think was interesting. A lot of his sermons aren't that long. Some are really long, but a lot of them are fairly short. But kind of to the point and uh, in that rhetorical style. And it's interesting because that that they um, that he's been remembered so highly is probably down to the how um, how good his his writing and how good his uh, sermons were because I think without that collection surviving I'm not sure he would have maintained the reputation that he has had. What I was interested in is uh, I don't know if it came up in your research or not, but it seemed like Constantinople selected a lot of their bishops from the Antioch area, like um, Nectarius was from probably somewhere in the Antioch region, and Nestorius certainly was, and they weren't the only ones. Was it because those monks in the caves in the hills around were considered <laughs> rock stars, or was it? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I imagine that played a part. Um, I suspect what, what was going on was partly geography, um, that we have to remember, um, you know, you'll read in your history book that Constantinople was, uh, you know, dedicated in, in 330 or whenever it was. But it was really a very new city um, on the scale that it was. And so it, it did take, uh, you know, the, about a century for it to sort of bed in and become uh, fully the capital of the Roman East. You know, that the several emperors before Theodosius you know, spent a lot of time in Antioch or in the Balkans on on campaign and didn't really live in Constantinople. So I suspect the the ecclesiastical talent and establishment was much stronger in Antioch. And as you say, they had this um, they had this system where the the thing about monks who go off and live in the wilderness is they kind of want to keep connected to <laughs> the big city because that's where they're going to get. Uh, adherents who'll come mm -hmm. and give them uh, food and give them money, which they then distribute to the poor, which sort of increases their their prestige. So Antioch's perfect because it's surrounded by these mountains. And so I suspect what was going on in, in those first sort of 50 to 75 years, Constantinople wanted good bishops. And so they were looking to 
the nearest place where all the talent was, and that that was Antioch. And John, when he got to Constantinople, it didn't take him very long to get into trouble. What happened that basically within a, a, a few months that he was he was in it with the church, wasn't happy with him? Other leaders and hierarchs around the Eastern Mediterranean weren't happy with them. The civil administration wasn't happy with them. What happened so fast? Yeah. So, you know, John was in Antioch for a, a decade or more, you know, and it was his home city and people knew him well. He turns up in Constantinople and he's, you know, he's he's an established um, clergyman in his own mind. He knows what he wants to do. He's been doing it in Antioch for years. And he comes in and he he starts throwing his weight around. So immediately he begins alienating uh, his fellow um, clergyman, which is not a great start because they think he's very bossy, he's very uh, stern, and he starts um, criticizing them for things that they've been doing for a long time. So he you know he's not happy with the social aspect of um, the bishop's life in Constantinople that the the, the bishop in the capital hosts a lot of dinner parties and John doesn't want to host dinner parties. He doesn't want to go to dinner with the elite um, in part because he thinks that's sort of unbecoming of a bishop and in part because he'd spent six or seven years living like a monk. So he was, you know, skinny as a rake and really couldn't cope with fine dining. Um, he He's telling his clergyman you shouldn't be uh <laughs> some of them were living with um with with nuns basically or with or with women who had uh, like his own mother sort of said i will not remarry which wasn't looked at as a strange thing in the capital um you know you might be a wealthy widow uh you have a you have a very big house in the capital and one of the people who lives with you amongst your servants and staff is a monk or a, or a clergyman and you know, obviously, we today could look at that situation and raise an eyebrow. And that's what John did. He came in and said, you cannot be living with a, a woman in Constantinople. I don't care how big her house is and how, you know, how well you get on. It is unbecoming. It's unseemly. And of course, people who'd been living like that for years were deeply offended. Uh, <laughs> so he's come into the capital. He's 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 put off a lot of people who would have been sympathetic to him. And he then... Uh, kind of begins alienating the those in power, uh, which is obviously where he really starts to go wrong. Um, there's a there are a lot of you know interesting political things going on. This is this is the time when Alaric and his Goths are roaming around the Balkans and they uh, will sack Rome a few years after John has uh, been exiled. And so there's there's a lot of agitation and he he kind of gets on the wrong side of those in power. Um, but I, I would say, uh, just to go back to it, that not dining with the elite is a big deal because that's kind of how business is done, you know, in the capital. People expect to be able to go and see the bishop and say, you know, I'd like uh, to, you know, have my wedding in this church. I'd like you to come and bless my infant son. I'd like you to make a fuss of me in public because that's how I, you know, keep up with the Kardashians next door mm -hmm. kind of thing and and so he really shot himself in the foot by by cutting himself off from the movers and shakers who might have stood up for him when things started to get really bad 
One thing that surprised me, I think when you said when he he kind of stole out of Antioch and he was snuck out of there, and it took about three weeks for him to get from Antioch to Constantinople, was there a huge cultural difference between Antioch and Constantinople? Uh, it's a it's an interesting question. I think um, Constantinople w- would slowly become um, more similar to Antioch. Um, at that stage, the the Roman Greek culture is, um, from our perspective, looks quite uniform. But that's because the the very elites who who kind of wrote stuff down liked to maintain a sort of consistent. Um, high attic greek style um but down on the ground of course there was there was big regional differences and and constantinople is in europe so there there would be a lot of you know thracian uh people making up the bulk of the the people living there there was a lot of german soldiers um in barracks there uh which would have been a lot less present in antioch um i don't think it would have been a shock to him uh, but I think there would have been a lot of differences. And certainly um, one of the things he didn't like at all was that the monks in Constantinople all lived in the city. Um, you know, for people who know Constantinople well, it's surrounded on on three sides by water. So it, it's very urban, whereas Antioch has a great sort of hinterland. Um, and so he was kind of used to monks living out away from the city and, and maintaining a sort of separation. And, and the monks in Constantinople all lived in, in urban monasteries and just wandered the streets and uh, went round people's houses. And he found that quite hard to deal with. He thought that was, again, kind of unbecoming. And um, I guess just wealth, that the capital at that point was was attracting rich people. And so although there were lots of rich people in Antioch, perhaps it was even more ostentatious in, in Constantinople. And, and John was not a not a fan of that. That's one of the topics he preached on more than any other was that Christians should not have lots of money and be displaying it. They should be giving it to the poor. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. hi And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org slash savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. 
And that's what really got him in trouble was how he interacted with people more so than a theological position. Like when he um, was it the tall monk, was that his yeah. name? Yeah, who the came tall monks. and they wanted uh, a certain level of care when they came. They wanted that was the, were those the ones he put up in a monastic cell, and they thought that they were gonna they should have been put up in a palace. And yes. fed them a simple, you know, monk meal that would be that he would easily have in Antioch. But that's not how they were used to living. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, John, John was a kind of uh, like like the early Christians, I think, would have thought to themselves that he really takes that that teaching of Jesus about give up, you know, give away everything you have and follow me. And John really took that to heart. And that is definitely um, not what a lot of people expect the the Bishop of Constantinople to be like, because he is in charge of, uh, as you say, his own palace. And so when guests come to visit, they expect to be put up in a nice room. You know, like today, if you were if you were going to the Vatican on an official visit, you're going to meet the Pope. I mean, you know, you, you'd be expecting this to be um, a really nice occasion for you much nicer than anything you've seen and um the 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 tall brothers were were exiled from egypt coming to the capital looking for him to to look after them and treat them as um sympathetic guests and he was um quite rightly wary of upsetting the the archbishop of uh, Alexandria, who'd exiled them and so he didn't he put them up elsewhere and as you say he thought well you are monks so this is not exactly hardship for you, but people took this the wrong way. And uh, it, it led a lot of people who were already unhappy with John's leadership to kind of start saying, well, hey, could we get rid of him here? You know, if the political winds blow right, we can get rid of him and get someone who'll, uh, who'll be a bit easier to deal with. And what what it seems the issue that really put him in big trouble was when he called out the empress in the middle of the sermon. Can you explain a little bit and talk about that? Because I think that was, I was very shocked when I heard that. Yeah. It, so we should say that despite uh, angering so many people in Constantinople, John was loved by the people. Um, his his sermons instantly translated from Antioch to Constantinople and the you know everyday Christians were huge fans of his. And, and we should say, that it's not it wasn't just a case to them like we might think today that a bishop was someone they saw on sunday they heard him preach they went home he was seen by a lot of them as the leader of their community you know constantinople was a very christian place but there were still uh, pagans around and i think john would be seen by many of the christians there as their new patron the new person they would go to if they got arrested if they got sued if they got injured and he, you know so he is a really important figure to them and and they they love him um so i think that slightly goes to his head that he thinks you know even though i'm upsetting these people they'll just have to get in line because the people are with me he had been very polite to the emperor and the empress for several years but there came a point when he he made uh, a comparison between the empress and john the baptist i think um saying you know if john the baptist came in today in chains and the empress walked in at the same time you would all look at john 
because of his moral goodness you know his chains would shine much more brightly than all the gold and jewelry that the empress would be wearing now that might be uh, a fair analogy if you are a, a fully committed christian but when you're in a position like john was and the elite are, are sitting there every week in church being criticized for being rich for being ostentatious they don't like it and suddenly he calls out the empress by name even if sort of indirectly in an analogy and that got back to her and began to turn her really against him you know she doesn't want to hear that and as much as we might think you know she she is a bit of a hypocrite being a christian and yet living with such wealth it, it's hard to hold her to that standard because it was expected of an empress to to dress finely and to stand out from the crowd that's what made her an empress so it's one of these tricky situations and when the politics really does start to heat up and they are on opposite sides john doesn't cool things down with her he he continues to imply things about her and his servants he never he never explicitly <laughs> calls her out by name and criticizes her but but people know what he means or think they know what he means and he really probably should have treaded more carefully if he wanted to stay uh, bishop for a long time and he was ultimately painted the reason what was the reason that got him kicked out of constantinople well, going back to the to the Long Brothers issue, so these these monks from Alexandria come to Constantinople. They're looking for a way to to fight against their exile by the Bishop of Alexandria, um, who's called Theophilus, and the Empress uh, agrees with with the the monks and calls Theophilus to to come to Constantinople and and face questions of of illegally exiling them, but Theophilus who is who comes across I, I don't you know i haven't studied him in the depth i've studied john but he comes across a very unchristian uh man you know a real bully a real politician he decides to turn his trial into a trial of john because he was already unhappy with another man from antioch being pushed ahead of an alexandrian to get this job he has been hearing all these complaints about john he thinks i can make a power play out of this so he he kind of collects a lot of charges against John. Um, there's 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 quite a lot of them. Some of them frivolous, some of them serious. Um, probably best to listen to the episode than than me attempt to explain them all now. But um, the the you know the world of the church, uh, particularly in the fourth fifth century, is is very procedural. And so if you uh, as as John had done, if you if you make certain decisions outside your jurisdiction, you can then be held up by a church council and sort of suspended from your post. And so, John had done some things uh, which technically qualified as that, as as had Theophilus, I should point out. But he managed to sort of corral the churchmen of Constantinople against John and got John exiled. And John was then recalled by the emperor and empress because the crowds rioted and did such damage that that the imperial couple um <laughs> kind of panicked called John back and he stayed for another uh, 6 months i think you know maybe a little a little more but again he lashed out at the empress um she she was having a ceremony 
uh, uh, with a with a statue of her being unveiled, and it clashed with his service. And he made comments about her, or you know, kind of related to her. He couldn't help himself, and again, it got back to her. And as things had somewhat calmed down, she attempts to exile him again. More riots, and eventually he, they they get him out and don't recall him this time. So it's it's a long saga, and um, if if he wasn't so popular with the people, he would never have lasted as long as he did. And I think it's interesting you brought up how interconnected everything was. And at some point, didn't he entreat with Innocent, the um, I believe that was Innocent the first in Rome? Why did he go to Rome to fight Alexandria? Yeah, so at this stage, um, there were only uh, the three uh, patriarchs, um, Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. Um, I don't think they'd added Jerusalem, and they hadn't added, they certainly hadn't added Constantinople yet. He was just bishop there. He wasn't archbishop. He wasn't a patriarch. And so in looking for a solution, uh, he, he appeals to the Pope, who still has a sort of primacy because it's the seat of St. Peter. And um, so he, John, you know, to be fair to him, says when all these charges come against him, look, let's have a church council. You know, the Pope could preside and we'll sort all the charges out. We'll, We'll sort out the charges against Theophilus. We'll sort out the exile of the monks and any charges against me. I am more than happy to sit at that trial but I, you know, I'll trust Pope Innocent as a judge, but I'm not going to a, a trial where Theophilus is on one side and I'm on the other. Um, but unfortunately, I think Pope Innocent is suitably busy. Um, <laughs> he, you know, he does send an embassy on John's behalf um, to to hope, uh, to try and convince Arcadius, the emperor, to allow some kind of church council to happen. But uh, by the time that embassy comes, I think it's 405 AD, and in 406 you have the big breakout of Vandals and uh, Alamanni and Goths and, and Franks and all the rest of them across the Rhine. And so I think, you know, uh, Pope Innocent is then having to deal with, I think, two emperors at least, you know, the following year fighting each other or you know stilicho's leading armies and the, and the the pope is getting involved uh you know in, in in trying to keep the empire together so i don't think at that point as john disappears off into exile he was going to uh spend any more time than he had to on on chrysostom's case so we won't give away everything but eventually john does get exiled and he's out of the picture what's interesting to me is that john is still considered a huge saint and that he's venerated so much but a lot of his contemporaries from antioch were tarred with a heretical brush um there's guys like ebas and i think he was a little bit later and theodore of masa puestia that's a hard one to say yeah (laughs) he was more or less contemporary and nestorius was of the same theological school how did john get out of that yeah, this it's an interesting one because um, I think I think John avoids contamination in part because of his popularity that that because as we were talking about because these sermons survive because they were written down by stenographers at the time 
that keeps his legend alive and people remember him and he's popular. Um, I, I also think John himself was not too concerned with issues of Christology. Um, you know, anyone who listens to the history of Byzantium, it's a, it's a constant theme. You know, what is the relationship between Jesus and God uh, and the Holy Spirit and, and how, what is Jesus's nature? And John wasn't that kind of Christian, I don't think. I think he accepted um, what was the mainstream view at the time and was far more concerned with how Christians behaved. And so I think though those two things, the fact that he wasn't a great writer on matters of Christology and that he was already popular, meant he wasn't considered someone who needed to be... Uh, <laughs> Um, discredited in later centuries um, some of the people you mentioned were were discredited well were kind of written off by Justinian when he was trying to make a compromise with the Monophysites um, you know a, a couple of centuries later and so I think John just gets a pass um, because of those two things even though as you say he was following a similar line than people who then get struck off the diptychs and regarded as heretics so they're just there wasn't a huge reason to throw him under the bus like with the three chapters and exactly um i don't think i think it would have caused controversy because he was still well thought of and, and beloved by at least people in church circles and so john in modern um and modern going since more or less that time but even up until today he's been lumped in with gregory of nazianzus and basil of caesarea who were really guys of the previous generation how does he get lumped in with them in later byzantine iconography and hagiography yeah i i i gather they're known as the three hierarchs yes um, and again, I, 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 this is not my area. I'm, I'm not sure how um, the Eastern Church's uh, liturgy and, and celebrations get put together. But I suspect it is, again, due to his popularity that um, Gregory and Basil had, um, had spoken out against the issues of their day that they'd help define what orthodoxy would become um speaking against sort of arianism and nestorianism and john kind of joins them even though he wasn't really interested in that but he as you say he was sort of the next generation he's not he's not too far removed i think that may be one of those things that as time goes by people kind of lump together figures who actually in their own day weren't really contemporaries but they're all three sort of giant figures of the time but for slightly different reasons so i i imagine that's just historical shorthand um but you you might have to talk to someone who's a, who's an expert on the orthodox liturgy to get uh, a more in-depth answer i think that's a pretty good answer <laughs> it sounds good to me we got some questions from listeners, and um, one is from Tom, and he's actually a fellow Agora podcaster, host of the American Biography podcast. And as usual, he asks questions that are probably pretty hard to get into and to explain, but they're always really interesting. And he always he had read and thought about John as sort of a proto-Martin Luther character who 
was a huge reformer and fighting against a corrupt system. Did you get that from your, did you get that sense from your investigation of him? Uh, it's a very interesting comparison because I think, I think the answer is no, though I'm not a, a Martin Luther expert, but I think Luther was looking at the whole system and seeing what he thought was rotten and what can we do about it. Whereas John is, I think we, we almost might look at John as kind of um, naive, I suppose, um, or, or idealistic because, you know, as I say, John grew up with this, this mother who stood against the, what would be expected of a woman in her times. Cause his father dies when John's very young, she could easily have remarried and she refused to on the grounds that that she didn't need another marriage. She'd already, you know, she got married once. That's what, you know, she was committed to John's father for life. He'd now died. She would be committed to the church. Um, that is a level of discipline not all of us can live up to. So John, instead of saying, you know, this imperial system is full of corruption and driven by money and wealth, what we need to do is reform the system he just continually exhorts people to be like him, to be more disciplined, to refocus their priorities, to give away their wealth, to take care of the poor, to do right by people, to be good Christians. I suppose it's 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 sort of Jesus-like, you know, Jesus preaching about what you should do to get right with God, as opposed to saying, uh, I, 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 we need to, uh, we need to have a social revolution. And, uh, one of the very, one of the more interesting anecdotes is that in a sermon, John gets carried away talking about you should all give away your wealth, and he says, you know what we should do here in Constantinople, uh, or he may have been in Antioch at the time, but he says we should, we the Christian community should all give our wealth away together, sell it all off, and live communally, and so he's kind of suggesting, you know, communism. And everybody starts years. looking around at each yeah. other. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, he says, this was a great idea, not only because we'd all be happier, but that the pagans, you know, particularly the poor ones, would all come running to join this system because then they'd, you know, be taken care of and they'd have their own share of all our wealth and we would convert all these people instantly. And at the end of it, he says, obviously this will never happen. Like, you know, he says, this is just an idea I'm thinking through. Wouldn't that be great? But obviously it'll never happen because he doesn't really believe that the, that rich people will give away their wealth. Um, so, yeah, so I would say, no, he's not like Martin Luther, even though they may have had similar um, goals. I, I don't know how you would look at John's methods of achieving it, but he obviously thought if we all just behave better, that's that's the way forward. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, everyone. I'd like to say something about a new product I've tried called Calitrin. 
doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calatrin is for healthy weight loss. I have taken Calatrin myself, and I can honestly confirm that I've lost weight, I sleep better, and, and I have found relief from a joint injury that I sustained in my arm. Calatrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age, and I am reaching of that age where things decrease. Taking Calatrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calatrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HOP two three zero six zero five, and I'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text HOP two three zero six zero five, and I really do recommend you give this product a try. And I'll talk to you next time. Are you concerned about tensions in the Middle East? Do you wonder where we're currently at in the biblical timeline? Are we really in the last days? Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Carl Muller with the Inside the Epicenter podcast. Every week, my co-host, best-selling author Joel Rosenberg, and I answer those questions and more. You'll hear inside knowledge of our meetings with leaders at the highest levels of government in the U.S., Israel, and the Middle East, equipping you to filter the news with biblically sound insights. Find Inside the Epicenter on your favorite podcast app or go to joshuafund.com to listen and subscribe. Yeah, I don't think he had that vocabulary. That just wasn't in the, yeah. um, you know, that just wasn't in the context. And what he was really preaching was directly to the lifestyle that he lived as a Middle Eastern monk. Mm. That's what he was, you know, I think that's what he was holding up as the the paragon, not that he was going to do these great reforms it's just basically people should live the way he lived just like you said yeah and i think he he was very invested in the church you know he didn't think the church needed reforming it just needed more good men like him um whereas i think martin luther was you know was looking at a system that he could see was perpetuating bad things and then this is a question that i i knew was going to come up and it's kind of a sensitive one but John had some pretty nasty, I guess you could say, even sermons against the Jews, and there's been a lot of different ways to explain them and apologies for them. But in your research, how did how did you think about them and how did you handle them? So for those of you who don't know yet, I mean, you know, John would preach sermons usually on a particular topic, on a theme, and he did a whole series uh, specifically against the Jews. You know, he, here's how the Jews are and you should not be like them. Um, I think we should also add for context, because you, uh, you've you done a couple of episodes uh, with Gary Stevens mm -hmm. um, from the history of the bible podcast and you started to touch on this idea that i think is is becoming more common uh when you read about the origins of christianity that actually christians and jews were not at all 
defined in the way we think about them now. And and when you learn about the origins of Islam, the same thing comes up that I think a lot of us, you know, grow up with that sort of textbook idea of religion. Well, here's what a Jew is. Here's what a Christian is. Here's what a Muslim is. And when you go back and look at the time, and it starts to make a lot of sense, you know, there's there's no there's no radio, there's no television, there are no textbooks. People are learning about these new faiths alongside the faith they already had or their the faith their neighbors have. So there are a huge amount of Christians who are behaving just like their Jewish neighbors. There are a lot of Jews starting to get on board with Christianity that there is a a great mixing going on and every community will have its own version and you can see how easily this would happen because Paul was a Jew spreading this new message and obviously so is Jesus so <laughs> um i think that the main context to bear in mind with John's sermons is that he is he is trying to differentiate between what a Christian and what a Jew is. He's trying to establish that textbook um, uh, definition that we all grew up learning in school. So he uses a lot of rhetoric that you would use to dismiss political opponents because that's that's what he went to school to learn. So you'll read language you know the jews are dogs the jews are vermin the jews are our enemies which he would also direct at pagans um so it is anti-semitic in 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 the definition of that term but he is doing it in a context where he perceives the jews to have power and influence over people people like Jewish practices. They are circumcising their children. They are going to Jewish festivals. They're going into Jewish synagogues to hear uh, Jewish preachers and to to swear oaths in some synagogues because they really believe that there's a holiness there that will help secure their their business deals. There's all sorts of interesting practices going on. So. I, you know, I, I wouldn't defend John. He, he is saying nasty things about the Jews, but he does have a purpose and he is not picking on an, on an ostracized community in quite the way that we might think of it. Um, I, I don't think that makes what he's saying any nicer, but I suppose from his perspective, he is saying they are attractive, they are appealing I need to denigrate them so that you will go, oh, well, I better not go to the synagogue anymore. I better just come to church. I better sort of define myself more specifically as a Christian. So I think it's, I think, you know, if you were Jewish and you read about these these homilies, it would be easy to see them as just another part of European Christian persecution of the Jews. And, and it's obviously part of that tradition, but I think there is more context to absorb. Yeah, it seems the way they were used later is not the way that he intended on using them. He wasn't calling for a program or violence or anything like that. He was really trying to, it's, it's hard to explain it to not, you know, get into yeah. trouble, but it's, it's, <laughs> um, his purpose was to, it was a, it was an engagement and I was probably going back and forth, I would imagine too, that it really was a different rhetorical style, but later European Christians and even into the modern day have used those sermons and really decontextualized them and really took the worst of them and magnified them. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's the thing that uh, whenever there was violence, which there was a lot of um, in in any context, including contexts where people were rioting to get John restored, he was always straight up in the pulpit saying, Christians don't don't do violence. You know, so yes, uh, he would he would not have hoped anyone would take him explaining why you shouldn't be Jewish as a, as an excuse to to hurt Jewish people. Um, so yeah, and but, even uh, in places like Antioch, I think at, even at that point, like you said, that there the line was pretty blurred between Jewish and Christian, which surprised me that even after these a lot of these Christological issues were heating up, that there was still that blurring of lines but a lot of the population of the middle east was still really jewish too which was a, yeah. you know that demographic situation i think you almost feel you know looking back that okay constantine declares christianity the official religion and now everybody's christian that it was still it was a real mix of religions at that point absolutely and um you know, I, I I am very much looking forward one day to to thoroughly researching the origins of Christianity because a couple of things I've read kind of explicitly say that that the people Paul was was preaching to were these kind of um, Jewish or semi-Jewish communities living around the Mediterranean who've who've been gone from homeland for so long that their own practices are, are starting to blend with the, the Greco-Roman civilization around them and that he is presenting Christianity as this, this kind of blend that um, can, can kind of keep some of the practices that, that they really value and let go of others and introduce new ones. And so, yeah, there, there's a whole sense of blending that it's very hard for our minds to, to get around without a lot of reading because because we keep thinking, but but they're Jews and they're Christians. Why would they? Why would they get on? Don't they see the differentiation the way we do? But they did not. Yeah, that's definitely fascinating, and um, something that to plug Gary and I do talk about to some degree. Probably not as much detail as you can definitely get from a lot of the readings that are out there and resources. What do you, after doing all this research and doing four episodes on John Chrysostom, what do you take away from his life? Like, in a couple of sentences, what what should we know about John and what really stood out for you about him? Um, so I, for those of you who don't know, I, the history of Byzantium is styled just like the history of Rome with a, with a sort of political narrative. And the, the point of these John Chrysostom episodes was to to take take a look at daily life, and so I I went into John's story hoping that because we we get this really um, stark glimpse into what it was like to be in his congregation because we've got all these sermons of his that we would be able to see life in in fourth early fifth century uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, through this lens and so i think through john's life we get to see an awful lot about what life was like so you've already heard a good chunk about how how undefined things were um you you get to hear a lot about um gender roles you know how how he describes how men and women should behave um how he sees uh property and class 
um, how violence could spring up in the city in a way that's um, quite scary and and not at all like the sort of civilized um, uh, street life of a Roman city that we might imagine, you know, with with ordered streets and um, a forum for this and a marketplace for that. You know, you, you actually see people, you know, have a lot of ethnic tensions and political tensions that they're living with all the time and 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 their recourse to violence is much um <laughs> happens much more often than we might think um so it, it's all these things kind of um put together that made me think john's story was worth um was worth going into and i think i think what i would take from john's life in, in terms of a wider story of the roman empire is that um that you know the history of the papacy podcast is 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 telling you a very important part of western european history and obviously how that then influences the united states because that the popes stand tall as a figure of real power without uh strong opposition within you know within the church whereas byzantium by contrast has has all sorts of different pockets of power that spring up within the church and without it and john's life is a great example of that it's a great example of a man who could who could conjure up the crowds to stand between him and and soldiers because they were so passionate to keep this man who was their advocate who was their patron who was their um the, the guy who stood between them and, and the injustices of daily life and how the imperial government looked at that and thought, you know, we need to get rid of this guy. We need to get someone else in there who will do what he's told or will be, you know, easier to lean on. And you can see through John's story, I think, something important about how the papacy managed to avoid that. And by the, you know, the Roman Empire disappearing in the West, they got to carve out their own um, niche within European society and maintain their power. So, I would say John's life, you know, has all sorts of things you can take away for this podcast and for my own. Yeah, that's really, that's a great way to wrap it all up and tie it together. And since I have you, I have to ask and bring up that you are quite the walking dead aficionado. <laughs> and I, this is into season five now. How do you think that the show has progressed? Because we've actually had, I, you may not remember, we had a Twitter conversation about it. Yeah. And um, how do you think that this season has, because it was quite the um, the second half premiere, where do you think things are going from here? <laughs> um, well, I, you've read, have you read the comics then? Because I've, I've only read up to the governor arc and then I, I stopped. I have not read the I've only skimmed the comics and it seems that the, surprisingly that the show is following the comics pretty lockstep which I was surprised about. Mm. Yeah, I uh, me too. I um I actually try not to talk about <laughs> um my love of American TV shows on my history podcast because almost certainly I could kill off my audience by uh, <laughs> criticizing their favorite shows um i the walking dead is so uh I, I i've never known a show that's so popular to change sort of direction so often you know obviously it, it's had like three different showrunners at this point um i uh i i guess you know and i don't know when people are going to listen to this so i don't know how spoiler spoilery we want to be 
Um, but I suppose I, I'm always more interested in the periods of calm in a way because, because you know, the next disaster is around the corner. So I guess I'm, I'm, I was quite interested in them wrapping up again, uh, as you talked about the mid-season disaster and and everybody staying where they are and and having to live uh live there in peace again so i, I guess i i'm trying not to uh, say anything that will put anyone off or uh, or ruin the plot if you're if you haven't caught up but um yeah I, i'll just say that I, I i wish they would do more characterization and i wish uh there would be more peace b- between the next time you know the gates fall down and everything goes to hell I think that's what makes the show what kind of turned me off from it. I'm, I have a love-hate relationship with it is yeah. that it really is a TV-izing, for the lack of a better word, of a comic book. So you have to keep that mindset yeah. on it and that that's where the character's motiv- motivations aren't exactly not necessarily a realistic of what you know people in a zombie apocalypse would do. Yeah. You know, they make certain characters a certain way to fit a a bigger narrative, which I think is, you know, I like about it. But then it's also a little frustrating as well. Yes. Agreed. Now, um, you do have these uh, Byzantine stories. Do you have any plans for the next one on tap? I do. Uh, I am deep into it right now. Um, it's going to be about, uh, St. Simeon, the stylite or Simeon stylites, however you pronounce it. Um, but yes, another, another monk who, who went and uh, lived on a pillar for about half a century, um, which is, (laughs) is very interesting in its own way. Um, but yeah, so if you, um, if you're interested in, in learning more about Roman history, check out the history of Byzantium. You can go to the history of Byzantium.com. You can follow along with the narrative and to help support the podcast, I put up for sale these, these Byzantine stories, a chance to look at um, daily life in more detail. So you've got John's story and Simeon's story will be coming soon. And they're very easy to download and um, purchase. Do you want to explain that process quickly because it's a little different than your normal podcast? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you can just click. There is a there is a, a button at the very top of the page at the historyofbyzantium.com that says sale instructions. Uh, I do also explain it on the podcast. Um, but about halfway down the page on the right, it says buy episodes. And underneath, you can uh, just register your email and then you can buy whichever episodes you like or you can buy a subscription, which lasts for a year and gets you all the sale episodes and then follow through there. Uh, it's it's done by PayPal, but uh, we have restored the function which allows you to pay by credit card <laughs> and not sign up for PayPal, which some people are keen to do. So uh, check it out. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show, and we're glad to have you. This was a great conversation. Uh, thank you for having me. And uh, yes, if you want to talk about the origins of Islam, uh, then we can both risk uh (laughs) whatever that might bring uh down down the road hello it is ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic doing the dishes counting your steps you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you concerned about tensions in the Middle East? Do you wonder where we're currently at in the biblical timeline? Are we really in the last days? Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Carl Muller with the Inside the Epicenter podcast. Every week, my co-host, best-selling author Joel Rosenberg, and I answer those questions and more. You'll hear inside knowledge of our meetings with leaders at the highest levels of government in the U.S., Israel, and the Middle East, equipping you to filter the news with biblically sound insights. Find Inside the Epicenter on your favorite podcast app or go to joshuafun.com to listen and subscribe.